Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue to work our way through this beautiful part of God's Word. Follow along with me as I read, starting um, as we have for the last two or three weeks, starting in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 21. So God's word says here, starting in Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness not, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. God, we pray your blessing over your word. We thank you for it. Thank you for its inerrancy. Thank you for, Lord, its power. Thank you for the way that it cuts deep into the being that we are. God, we pray for you to work now through your word, by your spirit, um, to create, Lord, among us here, this odd and compelling community of faith that is at the same time, God, um, attractive and, and Lord, we just uh, lift that up to you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So this week I was down in Durham. I went to the AAA office there to pick up a, an international driving permit. I'm going to be, I'll tell more about it later, but I'm going to be going to the Ukraine uh, in about a month with Baptist on Mission. And I need an international driving permit to do that. And so I asked the lady there, by the way, do you have any maps of North Carolina, like paper fold-out maps? And she said, no, we can't keep them. They just, they, we don't have any. They get gone quickly. So it seems that Susan and I are not the only ones that are old school, right, and like, like to have a fold-out map. We were someplace a few weeks ago, and there was no Internet service. We were in a rural part of North Carolina, and, and that thing up there on the dashboard was worthless. So we needed a fold-out map, and she had one. So we used that. We need maps, I still think we need maps. And Ephesians gives us a road map. 
for our lives. It gives us a roadmap, I think, for all of eternity. And that roadmap is laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, which Ben mentioned a few minutes ago, even though he did it a little bit more, you know, liberally with the wording than we might uh, normally do. But it says, therefore, Paul writes, and he says, therefore, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We are called to walk worthy. We're called to live. That word for walk is our lifestyle. And that calling is founded, well, it's founded before the creation of the world. Because we were called before the foundation of the world by God and chosen by him to be holy and blameless before him, Paul says in chapter 1. So that holiness and blamelessness is that characteristic that marks how we're to follow this map, how we're to walk with Christ by faith. And this walk or lifestyle is crazy odd. Some would say just crazy. Others might say just odd. But it is odd. It is different. It is as countercultural, even rebellious, if you will, of anything that the world or the culture sees. And that's the walk that we're called to. Humility, all these things that, that Paul has talked about, we're to walk in humility and gentleness. We're to walk with patience. We're to walk in such a way that we recognize and bear with the differences in one another, but do it in love. We're to walk with one another with these characteristics of purity and gospel unity. And those characteristics are not recognized by the world and certainly not celebrated, at least not in a biblical way. And yet that's what we're called to. And so this Christ culture, and that's what we're in here, church, it's a Christ culture that is countercultural to that which is out there. And this Christ culture that we're called to in Scripture is attractive and compelling, listen, because the culture around us is starved. Starved for truth, and they don't know what truth is. They're starved for life, and they don't know where to find life. They're starved for identity, and they don't know where that identity can be found. And that's what's so crazy. We live in a broken world that thinks it can fix itself. Right? We live in a broken world that thinks the fundamental solutions to our fundamental problems are going to be found in our scientific development, in our economic redistribution, in our social improvement. They think we're going to be found in our racial reconciliation or in our political platforms. They think it's going to be found in our sexual identity. They think the solution is going to be found in some way in our military prowess. And the list goes on and on and on. This world can't fix itself and yet is not willing to read the instruction book. We're not willing to look to the creator who made us to see how we can be remade in Christ. So this world walks in rebellion and ignorance of God's will and his ways and wonders why things are only getting worse. Wonders why we can't fix ourselves. And so it's dark. Jason Jason did a great job last week describing that for us as Paul describes it. Darkness. That is both the disposition and the direction of the world around us. Outside of Christ, the Bible describes those who are outside of Christ as darkened in their understanding. And their lifestyle is unfruitful works of darkness. And lest we climb up on our platform and pull out our big giant King James Bible and start pointing fingers at someone else, Paul reminds us there in five, verse 8 of chapter 5, at one time you were darkness. 
all of us were darkness. But now, he says, you are light in the Lord. He echoes what Colossians 1.13 says, that God by His grace has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we are no longer darkness and are no longer in darkness. We are instead light and called to live as children of light. And light, as Jason told us last week, children of light cannot advance the kingdom of light by partnering with darkness. We can't do that in any realm of our culture. And instead, we're called to penetrate the darkness. And even as we penetrate it, we're called to resist it. (laughs) That's a God-sized task, right? And that's what our God calls us to do. Chip Bugner, who was raised here in Roxborough, his dad was the the superintendent of our county schools. Chip's dear brother in Christ serves at a church in Alabama now. He used to be in Turkey with families from Westwood. Chip wrote a little bitty commentary on Ephesians. He gave me a copy of it several years ago, and I was reading that. Here's what Chip says about this particular aspect. The church, in her distinct character and non-conforming dissonance, affords the world an opportunity to look at life through a different lens. The world receives some degree of grace through the presence of the church. Her righteous anger, the church's righteous anger, that calls sin, sin, preserves the world from its own perilous moral judgment, or I would say lack of it. The church sounds the alarm when the world sleepwalks near the cliff's edge. Light is a gift to the darkness, even if the darkness does not recognize it. We are a gift to the culture, church. We are that. And we're today seeing a couple more of those characteristics of what it looks like to walk as children of the light. Now, we've already seen that we're called to live a very odd and countercultural love within this world. All right? We are, as beloved children, to mimic our Father. And God is love, 1 John tells us. And we're to mimic that love. His love fuels our forgiveness. We've seen in Ephesians chapter 4, 32. And His love defines and focuses our own love. Right? Our love is Godlike. Our love is Christ-like in that it is sacrificial. And our love is worship, i.e. what I read earlier from the book of Romans. Our love is to be offered, our lives are to be offered as a gift of love, as a living sacrifice, a pleasing aroma that Paul talks about there in Ephesians. So our love is to mimic that of our Father. It's odd, it's countercultural. That love is absolutely, completely different from the culture's understanding of love, which means we are called to live with an odd countercultural purity, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And there's nothing more odd or countercultural than biblical purity. And I'm not talking about a purity culture that comes back from, you know, a couple of decades ago that, you know, is all, there's, there's a lot of talk about that, a lot of issues related to that. I'm just talking about the clear picture that Scripture gives us here, that the genuine self-sacrificing love of Christ is the polar opposite of the self-centered love or lust of the world, and that the biblical understanding of sexual morality or opposite sexual immorality is anything, anything outside of the covenant bonds of a man and a woman and that biblical picture of marriage that we have. And it does not matter if it's homosexual or heterosexual outside of that covenant bond of one man and one woman in marriage, according to that biblical standard, it's sexual immorality. And we're called to recognize that and speak into our culture with clarity, but yet with compassion. 
And I think I said a couple of weeks ago, this text calls us as church, as believers, to be on a starvation diet when it comes to the the culture around us and all the temptations and all of the siren calls that come up. It's not even to be mentioned among us in the way that we joke lightly about it or carry on about it. And Paul makes the point. It's rooted in idolatry. It's rooted in covetousness. The whole issues with sexual immorality, with sexual identity, all the LGBTQ, whatever those letters may be today, it's rooted in covetousness. I want somebody else's body, somebody else's sexuality, somebody else's wife, somebody else's husband, somebody else's child. Anytime we take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And anytime we choose to put our identity and our security in anything other than the love and knowledge of God, that becomes what we worship, that becomes what we, idol, what we idolize. We're to have none of it. We're called to have an odd countercultural intentionality. Jason touched on this last week. Look carefully then how you walk, it says in verse 15. Not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As individuals and as a church, listen, we do not gravitate toward wisdom. It's not something naturally that we will do. And if the scriptures tell us that wisdom is a treasure we're to seek, It's to be valued. Listen to Proverbs 2, or you can turn there and follow along with me. Proverbs 2, starting in verse 2. Make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your ear to understanding. Yes, if you will call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you will seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk with integrity. In chapter 1, starting in verse 16, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prayed for it in chapter 1. In chapter 5, we're to seek it. We're to seek wisdom. We're to, we're to walk in this world as children of light and to be level-headed. All right? That's not a term we hear often. But we're to walk in this culture level-headed. means we're circumspect. We see things for what they are and we deal with them as the Scriptures call us to deal with them. And when he says we're to redeem the time, he's not talking so much about a 24-hour period as he is opportunity, seasons. And we've already seen what does redeem mean? It means to pay a price to purchase something back. We're to pay that price. We're to sacrifice whatever is necessary so that we can seize the day, carpe diem. And that's what we're called to do. And this is countercultural. It is odd. It is, it is the polar opposite of this world that just kind of cruises along, just kind of goes along. And that's not what we're called to. And what is this will that he talks about? Go back and look in chapter 1, starting in verse 9. God's will has been declared for us, okay? You can walk away. We've said this for several weeks now. You can leave here knowing absolutely for certain what God's will is, all right? You can know it. 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That's in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. God is moving all things, all time, all lives, all of history toward the ultimate end that everything will be united for all of eternity in Christ. That's where we're going, guys. And that's what we're to be a part of. Now, why would we do anything or allow anything to distract us or desensitize us to God's will, to his revealed will? Well, that leads us to this next point, the point that we come to in Ephesians 5.18. We are called and commanded to live with an odd countercultural sobriety. There's two commands in that one sentence. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Two imperatives, two commands. Don't get drunk and be filled with the Spirit. It's that simple. Now, on the surface, those seem to be similar, right? Don't be under the influence of alcohol, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in some sense, that's an accurate comparison, but, the, but it stops there. Because what's here is really a contrast between two influences, if you will, or two things that control us and direct us. To be drunk, we understand, is to be under the influence of alcohol. And I'm not going to get into blood alcohol content. I'm not going to get into alcohol content in a specific beverage or any of that stuff. We can have that conversation. We can do that later. I want us to just focus on what this says here. Because someone under the influence of alcohol, he says, is in darkness. It's not a characteristic of the light. Now, understand the culture of Paul's day there in Ephesus, and we see how this is relevant. Because one of the cults, one of the temples, one of the places that people worshipped there was to the god Dionysus, who was the god of the grape harvest, the god of wine. And their order of service, as you came into that service for that day, would be first intoxication. Because they felt that intoxication led to inspiration. But it quickly led to sexual immorality with the cult temple prostitutes who were there. So you see connection there that was cultural and also is one made scripturally. The connection here, then, is don't be drunk, because being drunk doesn't inspire us. <laughs> being drunk changes us, but not for the better. Listen again to what the writer of Proverbs says. I'm reading from Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrows? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wombs without cause? Like you wake up with the bruises, go, where the heck did that come from? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who, tr those who try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you'll say. But I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. The Bible constantly and consistently condemns drunkenness. We need to recognize that. It started with Noah. He planted a vineyard. He got drunk. He passed out naked and brought shame on himself and his family. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot 
went into a cave with his daughters. They got him drunk. His daughters slept with him. And out from that relationship came the Ammonites and the Moabites. Drunkenness is condemned clearly throughout Scripture. Now, we need to note, I think it's, I think it's wise for us to note, that the Bible does not completely prohibit the use of wine. Wine is seen in the, in, in the Scriptures as a sign of God's blessing. Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that it may bring forth good food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. Jesus himself compared himself to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sworn to be a teetotaler. God told his mother before he was born he would be. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 11. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And I think, didn't Paul tell Timothy the little wine would be good for his stomach? And some of those things that ailed, you know, were an ailment to him. I talked about this years ago here, I remember. We were talking about the cultural differences, even within our country. And believe me, they're, they're true globally, too. There are Christians in other parts of the world who love the Lord with all their heart, who cannot imagine a Christian growing or using tobacco. It's unfathomable to them. And yet there were people in our culture who could not imagine a Christian growing a vineyard and having a wine business, a la West Coast. So there's cultural differences. We recognize that. There's biblical freedom given there. We recognize that, and I think it's important that we do. But like anything, a good thing that becomes the main thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes controlling. And it becomes that which drives us. Drunkenness, as I said before, is and always has been a characteristic of the darkness. The problem in America is that it's a popular thing. And it's gaining popularity. I read this article this week in the Atlantic Magazine, just recently published. Let me just read a little bit of paragraph from it. Written by a secular author, says, since the turn of the millennium, by the way, that was only 22 years ago, okay? So it's not like we're talking back in the 1800s, all right? Since the turn of the millennium, alcohol consumption has risen steadily in a reversal of a decline that was going on through the 1980s and 90s. Before the pandemic, some aspects of this shift seemed to be sort of fun, as long as you didn't think about them too hard. In the 20th century... 22 years ago, you might have been able to buy some wine in the supermarket, but you couldn't drink it in the store. Well, now grocery stores have wine bars, beer on tap, signs inviting you to shop and sip, and carts with cup holders. While the numbers of bars have decreased, drinking is acceptable in all sorts of places where it didn't used to be. Salons and boutiques, movie theaters, Starbucks serves alcohol, zoos serve alcohol, moms carry coffee mugs that say something like, this might be wine. Though for discreet day drinking, their author says, the better move would be one of the new hard seltzers, a watered-down malt liquor dressed up as natural soda. She says, even before COVID-19 arrived to our shores, the consequences of all this were catching up with us. From 1999 to 2017, the number of alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. doubled to more than 70,000 a year, making alcohol the leading driver 
in the decline of American life expectancy. I read also the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism talking about alcohol is the drug of choice for our youth. And by the way, it's very little difference between the youth in the church and those outside the church. It says, as a result, underage drinking is the leading public health problem in our country. Each year, over 5,000 young people, and this is four years old, 5,000 young people die under the age of 21 as a result of underage drinking. This includes deaths by motor vehicles, around 2,000, about 1,600 because of homicides, all under the influence of alcohol, 300 from suicide, as well as hundreds of others from injuries such as falls, burns, and drownings. Think about our culture for just a second. I have all kinds of playlists, and I listen to them all from time to time. Just out of curiosity this morning, I pulled up Morgan Wallen. Some of you guys probably got to see him this weekend in concert. All right? I like Morgan. The first ten songs I queued up, and I didn't have to listen to them all. I just listened to the first two or three lines. Out of the first ten songs I queued up from Morgan, six of them talked about alcohol. I queued up a list from Eric Church. I really like Eric Church. Out of the first ten songs I pulled up, five of them were about alcohol. Whether it's hip-hop, country, or pop music, according to one article I read, this was a study done by Johns Hopkins University and Boston University. Hip-hop, 38%. Country music, 32%. Pop music, 31% of the songs. Talk about or in some way esteem and celebrate alcohol. So it's everywhere, right? We've got to recognize that. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great physician before he turned into a great preacher, said this. Wine or alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, so it does not inspire us. It is a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol, and you will always find always that it's classified as a depressant. It's not a stimulant. It depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all the brain. They control everything that gives a man self-control, that gives him wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest, alcohol tears that down. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit in a textbook on pharmacology, we'd put him there as a stimulant. For that is where he belongs. He does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, our mind, our intellect, our heart, and our will, which is why the Scriptures tell us here, don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul has already told us that we are sealed with the Spirit once for all by God when we come to faith in Christ in chapter 1. And we're commanded in chapter 4 not to grieve the Spirit. Here, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And it needs to be clarified. I won't take a long time with it. Paul says in Ephesians 12:13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink from one spirit. Being sealed, baptized in the spirit, is a one-time act of God. He graciously, when we come to faith, seals us, baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. We are never, ever in Scripture commanded to be baptized or sealed by the Spirit. All right? There's not a second blessing. There's not something we have to do extra besides put our faith in Christ to receive the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. And that's what this text says here. We're commanded, excuse me, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. 
And the, bar, the verb tense here is important, all right? I won't take a lot of time with it. It's an imperative, meaning it's a command. It's not optional. Secondly, it's, it's given to us in this sense as a, as a present tense verb, which means this. It's not something that happened way in the past and it's done. It's an ongoing action, all right? It's something that we're to constantly be pursuing. It's a part of our life, a part of our walk. And thirdly, it's plural, which means it's not up to just super Christians or some elite group to be filled with the Spirit. It's for all of us to be filled with the Spirit. And that text is important. I'll talk about it again in just a minute when we wrap it up. So all of this leads us then to this next point. Because we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, and that Spirit does something within us corporately, then we're commanded to live together with an odd countercultural community. All right? That's who we are. Odd and countercultural in our community. Look at what it says. We're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. There are relational consequences, corporate benefits. To us, being bab- to us being filled with the Spirit, all right? And that's what it talks about here. The Spirit's filling results in a different orientation. It's a Godward orientation in our lives. Think about that for just a second. It's a Godward orientation in our conversations. We've already seen that. It's a Godward orientation that makes us thankful, that causes us to live a life of reverence, that leads us to be submissive to Christ and to one another. So this Godward orientation, Paul tells us, has ramifications within our, within our horizontal relationships. Speak to one another, it says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I don't think this means that we stop talking and turn operatic all of a sudden. You know? How are you today, Jason? I'm fine, thank you. No. Can I get an Amen. That is not what that means, all right? Don't go there. Here's what I do think it means. It starts, as as the text tells us, from our hearts. Make melody to the Lord with your heart, or with all of your heart, it might say. Wholeheartedly do this. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 15, did he not, that what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart first? So what's in the heart is going to come out. Jesus illustrated this for us when he talked to the woman at the well. Right? Remember that conversation at the well? He said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him or her will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then later on in the, tem- in the temple, as he stood up in the midst of the festival, he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow liv- rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The heart filled with the Holy Spirit is a Godward-oriented heart. A heart filled with the Spirit is filled with the Word of God. And that Word of God spills out in our conversations. It spills out in an artisan way, like, an, like a well coming out. And it spills out beautifully. It spills out encouragingly. It spills out graciously. It spills out, as we have seen already, in a way that's going to build up fits the occasion, and is suitable to give grace to those who hear from Ephesians chapter 4. That's what this conversation, this this horizontal singing to one another is. And I don't think we can make a big distinction between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, although 
Clearly, this early church sang the Old Testament hymns, the Psalms. They put God's word to music in some way. They also sang hymns. And those hymns, we don't know exactly what they were, but most New Testament scholars tell us that the New Testament is filled with them in one way. Excuse me, Philippians 2, that, that hymn about Jesus who in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself of no reputation, that's a hymn. There's a hymn even right here before us, many say, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. They were singing that to each other. And then there were spiritual songs. There was just the Holy Spirit grabbing somebody's heart and uniting that heart with their creativity and creating these, these musical songs. And this was a part of their conversation. This was what they were speaking to each other. We, we try to format our worship services each week in a way that two things are done. We sing to God first. Think about the hymns we've sung today. And then we sing to God in a conversational way so that we're speaking to each other. Great is thy faithfulness. Who are we speaking to? We're speaking to God. We're singing to God. We're praising him for what he is. But then in the Psalms and even in some of our songs, we sing to one another. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. So our singing and our speaking is to him and for him and to each other and for each other. Which is so important for us to recognize. There's a Godward orientation in our conversations. And then there's a Godward orientation in our worship. And you would think, duh, we're here, but no. <laughs> Be careful because the lights and the smoke... And the display and the concert atmosphere can quickly cause us to, wreck, to, to lose focus, if we're not careful, on who it is that we're here for and who it is that we're here to worship. And this Godward orientation in our worship comes from our hearts. Paul is saying that what is acceptable and pleasing to God is not mechanical. It's heartfelt. It flows from our heart. And the heart that's spirit-filled is love-filled. And the heart that is love-filled pours out to others. And it's one of the reasons that I, I posted this little thing last night. Tony Morita says this, it is clear from this passage why corporate worship is important. So he asked, why not curl up on a Sunday morning with a box of chocolates and watch, worship, watch your worship service on a computer or a TV? Well, he answers that question because that does not allow you to do what this verse teaches. Vertically, the Spirit prompts us to sing with our whole being to the Lord Jesus, and it spills over horizontally into other believers. Speak to one another in this way. Secondly, our Godward orientation makes us thankful. Think about this for just a second. This gratitude is a part of our worship. It's a part of our conversation. Being Spirit-filled fills us with thankfulness. Paul said this in Colossians 3. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Do you know, and I know you do, these people that honestly you just really try to avoid those conversations. Because you know they're going to they're gonna need some cheese with that wine, and I'm not talking about what's in a glass. They're just whining, and they're complaining. And we know what it's like. Spirit-filled believers are thankful people. They're not complaining people. I mean, remember the first three chapters of Ephesians? 
He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined, predestined us as children for adoption. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's not by grace. It's by grace that we're saved. It's not by our works. Three chapters, one after the other after the other, of these beautiful pictures of God's grace to us. What have we got to complain about? And a spirit-filled believer is a thankful believer. And that thankfulness is being spilled out into the lives of others. And finally, this Godward orientation humbles us. And it puts us on level ground. It says that we're to be submissive to one another. And we'll spell this out as we get into this next section. But this submission, this Godward orientation, kills pride. It kills rudeness. It kills self-centered, selfish ambition. It kills Self-interest, it kills the stubborn insistence on my rights and my opinions. And that is not characteristic of God's children. That's the characteristic of the darkness. It's not a characteristic of Christ, who, although he was in the form of God, did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself and became submissive. And we're called to that same response. We're called to be a people, a community that is seen as odd and counterculture, countercultural. If our ambition is to fit in, we are not walking with Christ. We're called to be odd and countercultural. And that oddness and that countercultural characteristic is going to be seen in the way we love. It's going to be seen in the way that we live, in our purity, in our understanding of sexual morals. It's going to be understood in the grace that we extend to others who are different from us, even if they are radically, crazily different from us. I appreciate Jason's post of this prayer that we should be praying during Pride Month. Read it. I appreciate what Rebecca McLaughlin said this week. What if the most countercultural thing we as Christians can do during Pride Month is be humble? Amen. We're called to a countercultural oddness in our intentionality. We don't waste time. We don't waste opportunities, and we don't let anything inhibit us or distract us or hinder us from being as attentive as we need to be. There is an odd countercultural sobriety. I don't want to miss seeing and participating in what God's doing. And I don't want any of us to let anything negatively influence or intoxicate us in a way that will desensitize us to that. Jesus warned us about this. He warned us about it even in the last days. He says in Luke 21, but watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that that day may come upon you suddenly like a trap. Be alert, church. Be sober. Be awake. And be marked by an odd countercultural celebration. Joy and spirit-filled praise. We are... We've got to be conscious of this as we speak to one another, as we encourage one another. We're to be marked by this joy that cannot be described. But we want people to ask about it. And then we want to be able to describe it and point them to Jesus. Let me give you a couple of points of application and we'll wrap up before we come to communion. I want to invite you today to come to Christ. He's the only one who can meet your deepest needs. He's the only one who can free you from the chains and burdens of addiction. He's the only one who will love you unquestionably, and you will not wake up with a hangover the next morning. Jesus is the only one that can do that. And you have not gone so far or been so enslaved 
that you cannot come to Christ as the Holy Spirit enables you and leads you to do that. And I invite you to come to Jesus today. He says, come to me who are weary and heavy laden. Are you tired? Are you burdened by that addiction? Are you burdened by that constant intoxication? And listen, church, it may be something that doesn't come out of a bottle. It can be intoxicated on the culture of this world, sexuality, politics. There's a lot of things that mess us up and waste us. And Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. As a church, as Christians, be wise and be sober. It's that simple. Be careful. Yes, we have freedom. We do. We have freedom. But that freedom is outweighed by our responsibility to one another. Do you hear me? That freedom is outweighed by our responsibility to one another. We have freedom, but listen, I'll speak for myself. We also have weakness. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Because there's things that will steal it in a heartbeat. So there's an odd countercultural aspect to this. We need to, we need to recognize that. Our church covenant says this. All right? Well, what does Westwood say about me drinking? Here's what we say. I will, by God's grace, seek to live a life of holiness, and I will seek His help in abstaining from anything which will bring unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardize my own or another's faith. We have freedom, but we have greater responsibility. We are to be wise and be sober. Secondly, be filled. All right. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. We could preach a whole series on sermons of sermons about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're called to obey this command. We're called to confess our sin and repent so that we don't in some way grieve the Holy Spirit. We're called to by faith claim and receive the promises of God about the Holy Spirit. And we're called to submit to him and live that out. To be in his word so that it can be in our hearts. And finally, we're called to be joyful. <laughs> Guys, we live in a dark, hurting world. A sad place. And what an amazing opportunity to be different. We're not, we're not just going to bop around crazily. But there's a joy in us. Amen? The joy of the Lord is, is our constant. And, and we can exhibit the joy of the Lord without hangovers, without headaches, without distraction, without disappointment. And people are going to wonder if we're drunk, a la Acts 2, as, as Ben read. But with clarity and soberness and compassion, we can say, no, I'm not. I'm filled with Christ. Let me offer him some. Let me offer you some of him. All right? That's what we do. That's what we can do. Pliny was the governor of Bethania in Asia Minor as the early church was just getting started. In A.D. 112, he wrote a letter to Trajan, the emperor, and he asked him for advice on how to deal with the Christians. Because the, the Christians were doing things they weren't supposed to do, like worshiping someone besides the emperor. And so Pliny, in his letter to Trajan, says this. They are in the habit of meeting in a certain fixed day before it is light. When they sing an alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bind themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but to never commit any fraud or theft or adultery, never to falsify their word or deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. 
and after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. You know, what Pliny's talking about there is the, the, the gathering, the regular gathering of God's people. And the food he's talking about, the, the meal he's talking about, includes the communion meal. Includes that church coming together for the body and of, of, of Christ, for the wine as a, as a picture of his blood. And the scripture gives us clear, clear instructions for coming to this table. And it's very much in the context of this passage we've just seen. Paul writes in Corinthians 11, in the following instructions, I do not command you because when you come together, excuse me, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, not at all. What Paul is saying here is that there is danger and intoxication even as we come here this morning. And I don't mean necessarily from alcohol. I mean intoxicated by the world. And intoxicated in such a way that it's about me and my preferences and my wants. And when we come together here on Sunday morning, it's real easy to be drunk or at least hungover from what we've heard, seen, and sung in the culture and in the world around us. There's division and self-interest. And Paul says, be rid of that before we come to this table. Set your eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to Him. Lay aside every weight and the sin that easily entangles us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that we can come to this table and we thank you that you give us instructions in how to do it. God, create in us this odd and compelling characteristic of Christ, I pray. Odd and compelling in our love and our purity and our intentionality. Odd and compelling, Lord, in our sobriety. Odd and compelling, Lord, in our joy and in our conversations, and in our humility. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.